On this week's Bet the Process podcast, it's actually a continuation of yesterday's episode, which was with Alan Boston, Boston Red, which was a super, super interesting podcast, even though it was pretty long. We're going to be interviewing Ken Palm, which is pretty cool for us. Uh, we're Ken Palm fanboys, and he is uh, probably the the person that's helped us you know, be where we are. I don't even know if we are anywhere, but at least we're somewhere. Um, and as always, the Bet the Process podcast is brought to you by the Sports Action app. It's the best app for tracking all of your March Madness bets. And it's available for free on the Google Play Store and the Apple iTunes Store. So download it today. And with that, let's start the process. episode of the Bet the Process podcast with Jeff Ma and Rufus Peabody, who is in Buenos Aires still. Uh, this is a continuation of the pod yesterday, which left off with um, Alan Boston. And as many have said, it was an understatement when I said that the uh, interview ran long. So we've broken this up into two episodes. And today we're going to be talking to Ken Pomeroy, um, who I think both of us consider to be a pioneer in the sports analytics space. So I think for, for both of us, this is going to be a treat. But Rufus, before we were talking, you were mentioning an, an article that uh, Perdova had written on ESPN um, about um, Ken. So w- w- what was the nature of that article and what was interesting to you about it? Well, it talked about basically how, how it sort of bioed or profiled Pomeroy and how he started as a you know, meteorologist, he went to Virginia Tech, you know, uh, engineering guy, and he created these ratings for fun and, and how they ended up actually sort of transforming the college basketball betting market. There were interviews from odds makers at um, the Westgate, I think Ed Sands for for one, who said that they, you know, they looked at those numbers. And this was, I think, around like, you know, the 2008 to 2010, like period, like his numbers, people were blindly betting differences between his markets and the numbers. And there was a really fascinating story about a game between Maryland and the University of Seattle back in 2010, the beginning of the season, where he actually had a little glitch in his numbers. And he put the he he listed the game at like 121. Um, and it should have been like 30 to 40 points higher. And so sp- sports books like opened it right there at like 121 and a half, I think the article said. And then um, and people bet it up, and then he actually realized his mistake, corrected the glitch, and the total closed at 156. So that's how that's how much of an impact he had on the on the sports betting market. It's interesting. I mean, it's I don't I don't think he is a gambler himself, right? Did they reference no. this at all? Yeah, yeah. They said he doesn't gamble at all. Yeah, I wonder, and I wonder if like this paradigm shift is going to change. I.e. like no one in the United States really like very few people grow up thinking like especially analytics people thinking like, oh, I'm going to, you know, a- apply my knowledge of sports analytics and you know data science to the sports betting world. It, it, it's just not something people do. Um, but maybe now that's changing, like with things like Sloan and if sports gambling becomes legal, um, I think it'd be interesting, interesting to think about. I think you're right. I mean, I, I was always, Jeff, I grew up like I was always into the number side of sports. I, I could read a baseball boss score before I learned to read practically. But I didn't, even when I moved to Las Vegas to work for Las Vegas sports consultants, I, it was never on my radar to become a professional gambler. So it just really isn't something that, that I thought about. 
When you when you think back, like just kind of revisiting yesterday's interview with Alan Boston, it was interesting. Um, we kind of referenced this, but there were so many things in that interview that made me think about how analytical he is. Like, would you ever want to like sit down for two weeks with him and try to like capture what he did and try to create a, a betting model for college bet basketball out of it? Oh, I would love to. I would love to pick his brain. He, he his process seems really good and. You know, he asked the right questions. I think that's the most important thing. I think you can always find people that can that have good quantitative skills, but the problem is being able to apply them correctly in, in a way that actually, um, you know, could provide value against a market. And, and that comes from asking the right questions. Yeah, I think if I would love to sit down to, like you, me, him, that'd be great. It would be interesting. But then we need like someone younger up and coming to actually go do all the work. <laughs> yeah, and we can basically we, we should find what well, we're taking applications out there for anyone who wants to actually do the heavy lifting on a model for college basketball where we extract what's in Alan Boston's head and do have you seen Get Out by the way the movie no I you need no, to I haven't see it. I won't give it, it anything it was, away though there's like no, this crazy I, I watched like the trailer for it when I was on my flight down to BA and I decided not to watch it wow okay the trailer gave away a ton of it though so i was kind of like now what's the point i didn't know anything about it and i just saw it this weekend i didn't know anything about it going in besides the fact that there were like racial undertones or overtones or whatever tones. you would call them tones tones dulcet tones maybe dulcet tones there were dulcet tones. tones oh yeah there were tones um but yeah no it was super interesting oh i just got a little notification on my phone that uh keith law is here today at twitter Wow, I'm going to miss that because I'm doing a podcast with you. So, so wait, what's the whole point of this movie? Of the how does Get Out have to do with Alan Boston? Well, there's like a there's like a brain extraction kind of thing in Get Out. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not to give anything away, but there's like a brain extraction thing, and so we need to brain extract him into the body of someone that's really good at analytics uh, and that can take what is in his brain and make a really good uh, college basketball betting system up around it. So. Do you, do you know? Do you know what that? So, so what? The Alan Boston interview reminded me a little bit of of Kenny White's process back at like Las Vegas Sports Consultants. Kenny didn't really use a computer much. I mean, he um, he, but he had these detailed like spreadsheets, like handwritten spreadsheets of like rating out every player and 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 all these different things. And he had these like he actually did have some math. I mean, he had some, you know, he was like, I add these ratings together and that makes up this team rating and blah blah blah. But but the funny thing is he got me to analyze some stuff back when I, this is when I was still in like um, in college like to look at the value of, I don't know, I had to, it was some basketball stuff. And I remember like his, the actual quantitatively um, estimated numbers were really close to the numbers he had been actually using that he just got from like what he thought they would be, which I, and so I think that sometimes like people have really good intuitions, but I yeah, think it is I was... harder now given it's, it is harder now given how many people are analyzing things um, quantitatively um, to, to win doing that if you don't have some sort of, I think, um, statistical framework, right? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I've mentioned this before, like in the company that I started called ProTrade, we had like these unbelievable sports minds as both advisors, investors, and board members. And our football guy was Bill Walsh and our basketball guy was Jerry West. And when I went down to uh, meet with Jerry West, I remember this really well. It was like when he was at Memphis still, 
and you know the first he sat us down um my, my partner mike kearns and i who um, is the guy that now owns barstool sports he said to us boy i i got i got one thing for you i hate statistics and you know we were starting this new sports analytics company and so we we're like oh my god this is a fool's errand thank god we're here in august in memphis when it's you know 200 percent humidity and what he meant, though, as we spent time with him, we ended up spending like two hours with him. What he meant is that he hated the way that people in the mainstream media use statistics. His, his exact quote was, I hate that people think Allen Iverson's a good player, even though he needs 35 shots to score 30 points. And he talked about things like deflections and like he's like, yeah, maybe I should go back and have my scouts track every time a player is able to create a deflection. And he was going on and on. And by the end, you know, he was asking us questions that were very process analytics driven. And what it meant is that he, he didn't really hate statistics at all. Like he, he just hated the way that people use statistics to describe whether players were good or bad. And I think that's true. You know, there, there are obviously exceptions. I mean, like t- take a guy like John Gruden right now, right, who's, who's coming back and he's saying, I'm going to try to bring football back to 1998. Does he really mean that or is he just trying to be this bravado machismo guy that's trying to like – act like too cool for numbers, you know, like I'm too cool to use statistics kind of thing, like almost like Charles Barkley or something. But, I, I, you know, I, how long do you think it will be in the world before there isn't this sort of like divide where people are like, this is just one of the tools in my toolbox and I'm a fool if I don't use it? No, I, I agree. I think analytics, the word is is very misunderstood and people use it in many different ways. I think the way you and I use it People would be crazy not to to think that it would it, it works. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's uh, move on. We're going to do our interview with Ken Pomeroy. So let's uh, welcome in Ken. We welcome in to the Bet the Process podcast Ken Pomeroy, who is, as I mentioned, probably one of the people that um, Rufus and I owe most to to actually doing what we do. Um, he's one of the forefathers of analytics and sports and his name has become like his rating system has become an icon that um, is referenced quite a bit now but in general has had a huge impact on betting markets um, for the last many many years so Ken does it surprise you that that has happened like is that this something you ever imagined would happen you know after deciding that forecasting college basketball games is more fun than forecasting the weather <laughs> uh yeah no it was not something that i ever expected you know when i started doing it it was just a hobby and it was kind of a fun like intellectual exercise um you know there was a point where i started writing about uh college basketball uh in an analytical uh way that you know i thought i could develop you know a small audience or something like that but yeah i never uh never envisioned or or even considered the possibility of it becoming used the way it is today can we ask a little bit about how your system, you know, differs from some of the other systems out there and, and where you think maybe uh, your system is better? Okay. Uh, um, I, so, I mean, to me, the, 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 the site itself is just better from the standpoint that, you know, the rating, like people will focus on the rating and the ordering and that's sort of a natural thing. And I mean, I, I do as well, but uh, there's just more like, explanatory information uh you know supporting the rating than uh you get from most rating systems i mean other people come along and kind of mimic this approach but um 
you know, when I was starting, I mean, obviously I was heavily influenced by Jeff Sager. And I mean, he was the guy that kind of really, uh, I looked up to, you know, in my formative years, I, you know, I just uh, couldn't wait to see his ratings on a weekly basis in the newspaper before we had the internet. And, uh, and I kind of wanted to do what he was doing. So, um, you know, obviously his ratings just basically have one number and, uh, and that's the team's rating. Whereas, you know, my system, I'm looking at offensive and defensive efficiency, which are, you know, basketball concepts. Um, so it is kind of like a, a system in a sense, tailored towards basketball. I mean, the, the big overview is it's not like the system itself really isn't too sophisticated. Like you could just kind of run a least squares regression on scores and you're going to get a, an order pretty similar to what I have. Um, I mean, I do a little, you know, a little bit with recency weighting and obviously sight of game and, um, you know, accounting for the team's offense and defensive effectiveness, effectiveness against, you know, the type of types of opponents they are playing. But I mean, ultimately, a lot of it is explained by least squares regression. So, I mean, to me, I always try to sell the fact that, you know, it's not just a rating system. It's that you can see, you know, why a team is rated well, which is, I think is somewhat unusual in rating systems in basketball or, or other sports. Are you using more than, than like final, final score, score and, and, and offense and defensive box score stuff? Are you actually getting into play by play? Yeah, for the, for the rating, it's just looking at uh, final score and possessions in the game. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of the other point that probably needs to be made is that people talk about how you know, I have a predictive rating system, um, but it could be more predictive. Like I'm just I'm literally just looking at, at points scored and possessions. And, you know, I, you know, you could you could delve into the details of the box score and play by play data and try to to mine out some more information and, and make the, the system even more predictive. It, um, and I've considered doing that and I reserve the right to update the system and do it in the future. It, um, it seems kind of a little more pure if you're just looking at scores, like it's obviously you're, you're leaving some information on the table and, and the final score of a game can be misleading into how much, you know, a team dominated or how that game was played. But I mean, over a 30 game schedule, it usually works out to be a pretty good uh, estimate. Why do you think that um, some of the teams consistently are underrated or sort of like uh, Ken Palm highlights them to be underrated? So teams like West Virginia, Gonzaga, Wichita generally tend to be underrated in Ken Palm compared to sort of like traditional thinking. Um, do you have any thoughts on why that is? Yeah, I mean, there's sort of a tradition uh, in college basketball. Uh, this certainly affects teams like Gonzaga and, and Wichita State where, uh, you know, uh, because of the way they, the selection committee does their job, uh, the casual fan also uh, judges teams based on how difficult their schedule is. So, uh, you know, Gonzaga obviously plays in a pretty weak conference, um, especially when you consider they can't play themselves. So they just end up playing a lot of bad teams in January and February, and that causes them to have a very weak schedule. And, you know, ultimately, I mean, if you're going to make a good predictive system. You have to kind of overcome that hurdle and recognize the fact that teams from weak conferences can be really, really good. And uh, just because they play a bad schedule does not mean that, you know, that team itself is bad. And so uh, I think the perception is always going to be for teams like Gonzaga and less so now Wichita State that they've improved their conference. But um, teams like that, that, um, you know, they they aren't uh, on the same level as the big boys because they're not playing in that type of conference. And uh, um, that's certainly... So do you think that's a weakness of Ken Palm is that it's not it's not overcoming or not um, it's not looking at strength of schedule enough? Or do you think that's a weakness of like the general perception? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's more weakness of the general perception. Like, you, I mean, the only the best way to grade, I think, any predictive system is to look at the betting markets and see how close you are to those. And if you're reasonably close, then you're probably doing something right. And it's, you know, normally uh, I'm reasonably close on those teams. You know, Gonzaga, like this year, I think Wichita State had them at 20th. So I think they're pretty well pegged. I have Gonzaga at 8th. And I actually think they're pretty well pegged this year too. But, you know, last year, I mean, Gonzaga just completely bulldozed their conference and so did St. Mary's and so did Wichita State. And there's probably a little weakness in the system there that gives a team too much credit for doing that, just a little bit, you know. I mean, I think if you looked at the betting markets heading into the tournament, those teams uh, were overrated by, you know, anywhere from a, a point to, you know, maybe three or four points in St. Mary's case. Um, so it's a, you know, it's a challenging problem. Like those ratings were really well cal- uh, calibrated, I think, for for conference play and would do good if like Gonzaga and St. Mary's had to play WCC teams in the NCAA tournament. But they they were not so well calibrated for, you know, trying to match up the best, uh, you know, power conference teams against you know, Gonzaga and St. Mary's, the, the, I was a little, a little too high on um, both of those teams. How about a team like West so Virginia you, though? I mean, West Virginia is consistent. I mean, they're in a power conference, but they're consistently underrated by your system. I mean, your system overrates them versus what mainstream media thinks or mainstream thinks. Yeah. Um, certainly the last three years, I guess you can make that case. I, I mean, it seems like this year they're, they're pretty well in line. I mean, I'm 13th and I don't know if anybody thinks that's, too high or too low. They've obviously had huge troubles like protecting leads late in the game against good teams, which might leave people a little skittish and probably for good reason. But um, yeah, I don't, uh, I mean, it, ultimately it comes down to the scoring margin and they've, you know, generally had last two seasons have had pretty good uh, success, um, you know, beating teams quite easily and, and not getting embroiled in close games against bad teams. So, you know, that's usually a sign that a team is, is really good. Um, I, I don't know like why the public necessarily doesn't, hasn't bought into them is just because of their, their style, you know, they don't buy into a pressing, you know, style that, you know, ends up fouling a lot. Um, that's not, the I mean, case. we had, we had Alan Boston on yesterday and he's convinced that it's just because people don't like uh, Bob Huggins. So, <laughs> I mean, that could be, although Huggins doesn't strike me as like a terribly like uh, divisive uh, coach, like, you know, Krzyzewski or uh, Patino or somebody like that. I mean, he's just kind of a, big grump so uh, maybe people maybe people don't like him but uh, i don't get that impression so how much do you think the i guess these sort of small conference teams the gonzagas of the world the wichita states being generally undervalued by the committee is political versus the fact that the committee just isn't very good at seeing that these teams are actually really good yeah i mean i think it's all the latter uh, you know, people have to understand that the, the committee is made up of 10 people and five of those people are, are not associated with power conference teams. So they would seem to have every reason to um, bend over backwards and, and uh, um, you know, give Gonzaga the benefit of the doubt. Um, my impression, backed up by conversations with uh, various committee members, is that they just fundamentally don't understand that you can win, you know, let's say you can go uh, – 23 and two against teams ranked between 100 and 200, you know, the, the appropriate mix of home and road games. And uh, that's the sign of a really good basketball team that deserves to be in the tournament um, versus a team that goes, you know, five and eight against the top 50. I mean, they uh, fundamentally are always going to take that five and eight team. And 
they really just don't understand how to process those two two pieces of information, which, uh, you know, is part of the reason why I believe there should absolutely be like more objective data in this process and less human interference, less like playing the eye test card, you know, randomly when you just want to suit your own argument. Um, it, it definitely should be a process based, based more on, on objective data just because uh, we see over and over again that uh, humans are, you know, have a really, really difficult time of trying to, to parse out like you know, a bulk collection of okay wins versus a handful of quality wins for a team that also had many more, you know, losses against teams of, uh, of that kind of caliber. Do you think they look at your data at all? I mean, mean, you said you've had conversations with some of them. Yeah. I mean, they look at it, but they don't uh, utilize it in any meaningful way. (laughs) That's the problem, right? (laughs) Well, I, I mean, there's another larger debate to have on, on how they should use it, but uh, you know, the only time I think they've really used it in a meaningful way is the case is a case like you know a Wichita State, um, you know, a couple of years ago where they needed that large bid, and you know, based on the old way of doing things, like they would they would not have been good enough to get in that large bid. They did not have the resume that the committee likes to see, but you know, they were top fifteen, top ten in my system and and other predictive systems, and so you know they got the benefit of the doubt and were given you know an at large bid, and ultimately I think proved that they belong in that case but uh, outside of those you know really special cases like that yeah that it's it's not really used much well i mean if you look at your ratings this year like where they differ the most you know like is it is it laughable to you that xavier is a number one seed i mean they're 14th in ken palm yeah i mean it's not laughable based on what they accomplished you know their resume uh made them deserving of being a one seed and if you um are going to uh, select teams and seed teams based on on the resume and, and ignore uh, margin of victory, then absolutely, you know, they were deserving of a one seed. Um, th- th- obviously, like fundamentally, like their skill level based on what they did all season is probably more like a, a three seed or a four seed. Uh, and people should, uh, you know, take that into consideration when they're filling out a bracket. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's just like, there's two different avenues, two different approaches here. And I, I do tend to side with the fact that absolutely for selection like we should not be looking at scoring margin we should be looking at wins and losses and and uh taking it you know using them in the context of of who those games are against but um i mean here lies like the real challenge with this right is there's like this sort of like non-known criteria for how they're doing this and we face this all the time in the college football playoffs too it's not is it is it based on and and also we have this situation where you know, if a big player's out, like that year with Cincinnati when Kenyon Martin got hurt right before the tournament, you know, like it's just so inconsistent in how they actually like do their ratings. Like if they just came out and said, all we're doing is rewarding how your season was independent of whether your best player is gone or whether your best player is back or, you know, on and on and on. And for me, that's the challenge, right? Is there's no clear criteria that they actually publish to say, this is what we're trying to do. Yeah, I mean, what's weird is, yeah, there, so there really is, like, no necessarily fixed criteria, but, like, there is historical precedent, and it seems like, you know, when you look at the, the bracketologists out there, like, somehow, like, by Selection Sunday, they all converge on one solution, and that solution is usually really, really close to what ends up happening. Um, you know, like, this year, most people had uh, USC getting in and had Syracuse out. That was basically the miss. Uh, you know, otherwise, uh, they basically nailed the bracket in terms of uh, who would get in. So... In that sense, it is, I think, a little more predictable than people realize or, you know, even you'd expect based on what you're talking about. Like, there really isn't like this etched in stone criteria. But, um, 
But, yeah, but you, hear, you hear people saying like in there, I think there is even interviews when they're talking about Notre Dame and they're like, well, they're a different team now that Bonzi Colson, all you need to do is look at his, the record when he's in and they're a tournament team and all this kind of stuff. And, and they were left out, which is probably to me fair. I mean, it's not like they played that well in the ACC tournament, all things considered. So it, it's, uh, I guess, I guess like you're right, like Joe Lenardi is able to predict it. So clearly there is some criteria that I don't know of. But it, it just does always frustrate me in terms of trying to understand, like, what they are actually trying to do. And it seems it seems inconsistent, I guess. Yeah, and, you know, the injury part, like, really frustrates me. I cannot for the life of me understand why that is an accepted practice in selecting the bids. Like, there's literally, you know, to my knowledge, no other league in the world that looks at uh tries to parse you know hey how good are you with your current roster versus some other roster like nobody's gonna you know adam silver is not going to give the spurs a better seed you know if uh they end up being like a lot better with Kawhi leonard in the lineup uh you know if, if the acc tournament had said you know uh notre dame actually they deserve a, a three seed in our tournament because they have bonzi colson back so we're just going to shift the seeds around a little bit. like people would be outraged but for some reason for the ncaa tournament it's like an accepted practice that we need to consider all these things and it's just like to me ridiculous because it's a, it's a zero-sum game too like you're not i don't think the committee's devaluating devaluing wins over notre dame earlier in the season when they didn't have Monty Colson and giving more value when they did. Like, it's just too complicated to, to assemble all that information. So it, to me, that's something that uh, should go away. We should just evaluate a team's resume and not consider, you know, who was healthy and who wasn't healthy when they had wins and losses. So you think something more like a, like a professional league where there's playoffs based on wins and losses would be more like is what it should be more like than than just going for the best teams. Yeah, because a lot yeah. of times the best teams don't make the playoffs in the NFL or, or the I would say the NBA, but that's not true. Um, but <laughs> other sports, major league baseball, right? Absolutely, and, and, and nobody, uh, to my knowledge, nobody complains about that. We just accept it as that's we know the rules going in that you got to, you know, win a certain amount of games to get into the playoffs. Got to be a certain seed. You got to be in the top six in your conference in the NFL or whatever. And uh, and uh, how you get there if it's through three games he won by Hail Marys, like nobody cares, man. We, we know the rules and that's how it works. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't get why, uh, I mean, college basketball and college football, I guess, to some extent, I, I don't, I think the criteria there is even more vague, but uh, certainly in college basketball, why it's such an exception to the, the rest of the sporting world and why the fans uh, seem to accept it. It's interesting though, because I wonder in, in the world, and every league in the world is are the college football and college basketball the only ones that have subjective grading in who makes the playoffs. Like I can't imagine that that happens in soccer leagues or rugby leagues or cricket leagues, right? I mean, this is is this the are these the only two uh, associations that allow that? As far as I know, like uh, I mean, I'm not an expert on this, but certainly like. At- so the one other area where you might see that is at the high school level, you know, they have the same problem. Like, uh, I don't know how they, you know, figure out the playoffs in Texas, but there's obviously like hundreds of teams probably in each division and they don't have much in common schedule wise. So somehow you have to figure out who, who gets into the, you know, the playoffs, but certainly on like a basketball level, every state I've ever lived in, like even at the high school level, there's some objective criteria. You got You know, there's some sort of like playoffs and, you know, your own, uh, division or whatever and then you move up the next level to sectionals or whatever like there's a, yeah. a tiered system and it's all based on wins and losses and there's no like selection committee to determine who gets in i mean that's uh you know it's 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 super weird like if you start to think about it and compare it to the rest of the world like why how did we end up in this situation but it's ob- it's obviously not something that's going to go away i mean it's 
it's in the culture. And uh, I've proposed the idea before, Hey, this, why do we have a committee? Why don't we just have a, a, a you know, an objective system? And uh, I think people would rather blame mistakes on other people as opposed to, uh, uh, you know, an algorithm that they don't really know what what's behind it. I think that's probably, uh, if we really dug in deep, that would be kind of the source of, of this situation. Well, that's actually one of the things that I always talk about with, you know, when people make fun of analytics and whatnot, it's like, you know, obviously if we came up with a system, you know, let's just say we did something s- simple like wins and losses with some adjustment for strength of schedule. Right. And that's all we did. And then, and then it was just a simple system. Boom. Um, people would, like basically take that thing apart once it once it happened and you know it's you get to this point where you're like how do you expect numbers to do something that humans can't do effectively either like it should be a tool in the arsenal to some degree um but i think it can be better and more fair than humans can because numbers don't have these same sort of inherent biases that humans do right like i i think that I think it could be a much better way of doing it. Like if we look at your system right now, right, your top four seeds would be Virginia, Villanova, Duke, and Cincinnati. I think that pass, passes the laugh test a lot better than Virginia, Villanova, Kansas, and Xavier, at least to anyone that really follows college basketball. Maybe the one outlier is Cincinnati. How would you defend that? Yeah, I mean, it gets back to, you know, do you want to select the best four teams or do you want to select the four best you know, four most accomplished teams. And I mean, obviously if you're using my system, you're selecting the four best teams. So uh, I'm uh, reluctant to go down the road simply because, you know, like Virginia, you know, they beat Louisville, you know, two weeks ago on some sort of crazy comeback. And I mean, the reality is in my system, like whether DeAndre Hunter bangs in that three-pointer at the buzzer and wins the game, which is a super exciting moment, uh, whether he makes that or not, like it doesn't affect Virginia's rating really. Um and, and you know, don't you mean whether the not so smart guy in Louisville happens to foul someone <laughs> off a free throw? That was kind of, the, in some respects, the more key play that allowed that to happen. I mean, the, well, there were there were three key plays that and then they had to have a, a an inbounds violation and then they had to have a banked in three pointer by Virginia. Um, <laughs> so all three of those unlikely events had to happen. But uh, it was a perfect storm. What what odds would you put on? What do you think the win probability on Virginia was like before that free throw? Point zero 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 one. I don't know. I don't think it was that bad because I mean it was obviously remote, but I mean they were down four. They had three free throws. You knew there was a path to like making the first two and missing the second and getting a rebound uh, or having you know happen what happened. I mean it was obviously you know a very small number, but uh, not not completely uh, incomprehensible. Honestly, the 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 chances were probably worse uh, before the three-point shot was attempted because what you would never have like expected that three-point shot to be challenged. And if it wasn't challenged, the buzzer would have gone off as the ball was in the air. Like, it, you know, uh, the game would have been over. So uh, that's where I think the win probability was uh, minimized. The foul, I'm sure, increased uh, Virginia's chances at that point. Yeah, yeah. So, Rufus, you got any more for Ken? Um, I do actually, but less, I guess, more general question. Um, what are the similarities between predicting the weather and predicting basketball in terms of, I feel like they're both probabilistic um, endeavors, right? His, his, I guess, did being a meteorologist sort of lend itself to this? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, all forecasting is probabilistic. And I think that is lost on a lot of people who don't have the background that I had forecasting weather. Um, you know, if you're just a sports nut and you're jumping in and you don't have a, a lot of training on, you know, statistics or anything like that, um, you know, you think you're just 
I mean, every year I get requests from like kids in college and they're trying to like write a paper on how to predict the NCAA tournament. And I mean, every once in a while someone comes along and they just have this illusion that they're going to crack the code on how to predict the NCAA tournament with absolute certainty. You know, it's like completely a ridiculous concept. And uh, if you've had a background like forecasting the weather every day and understanding that you only have like so much, uh, certainty in making that forecast and you have to apply, you know, a probability basically to all of your work. Um, you know, it gives you just a tremendous appreciation for the limits of your predictive ability. And really that's something that you need to have in the back of your mind, no matter what you're predicting, whether it's the weather or, or basketball or the stock market or any, anything you want to predict, there's always a probability that should be associated with your forecast. And, uh, that's certainly something that, uh, you know, basically as soon as I started on this, you know, I, I didn't have to learn. I already had that knowledge, which was uh, very, very helpful. That there's this irreducible uncertainty. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, obviously when uh, um, Duke's playing, you know, uh, Stetson, um, there's a lot of certainty that Duke's going to win that game. But uh, once you get to the NCAA tournament, there are a few games that uh, have a high degree of certainty. And it's important to be able to kind of express, um, you know, how much, how much certainty you have in, in each prediction. If this sort of modeling uncertainty and predictions like – I, I I don't think you do gamble yourself, right? But is that something that like it's ever been interesting to you? From a, let's say you were in Las Vegas and it was one hundred percent legal, et cetera, that you know that you're interested in seeing how good your models are at beating the market. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm pretty pragmatic on that note. So the like the reason I I kind of got into this was that I so I have a lot of respect for the markets, and um, I mean, given the market. Uh, prediction or my systems prediction, I'm going to uh, default to believing the market prediction a little bit more. They just have more information to work with. Um, but the reason I, I got into this was that you're obviously not getting market predictions for a game next week or two weeks from now, or you're not getting a market prediction for what you know Virginia's expected record is in the ACC when we're you know starting the season. Um, and so I figured, you know, hey, if my system matches pretty closely to the point spreads that are coming out on a nightly basis, like it's probably doing pretty good. Like predicting that point spread two weeks from now or predicting a team's record over the next 10 games or something like that. So um, at this point, I feel like my, you know, obviously my information is so public that it's, you know, incorporated into the markets at this point. And so uh, trying to beat the markets using solely my system is uh, uh, probably not going to be terribly fruitful. Interesting. Do you see um, like in terms of this year going in, what, what teams do you think were sort of like the, the most misseeded or, or where do you see like the, the teams that probably have the biggest opportunity um, to overperform expectations? Yeah. You know, uh, the season was a little, I think disappointing in that respect. And that, um, you know, there really wasn't like this uh, darling team, you know, like we've seen from Wichita state. The past yeah. When Wichita was in the play in game or something like that. Yeah. Wichita was in the playing game. You know, we saw them in Tennessee three or four years ago, they were uh, in a similar boat, you know, they were in the play in game and they were like, on the edge of my top 10. Um, so we don't have like any kind of obvious situation like that. It's actually um, pretty boring to a large extent. I mean, obviously, you know, the weird thing is going to be a potential Duke Michigan state, like sweet 16 game where, you know, those are two of the, probably the eight best teams in the, in the country, two of the six best teams in the country at this point, according to my ratings and maybe better than that, you know, uh, and they have to meet in the sweet 16. So that really kind of gums it up. Um so, yeah, hard to really, like, find. I mean, I do like Gonzaga, like, obviously, as a four seed and eighth in my system and in a fairly soft uh, region. Um, I think they're a really interesting team that uh, could get out of there and, and 
you know, they're essentially missing a, a quality point guard. But other than that, you know, they have kind of similar uh, similar feel to last year. They're not dominant defensively, but they're still really good and they're just really balanced. They don't have a single like point of failure offensively. Like they have a number of guys that can contribute. So uh, if there's one team I think is you know certainly undervalued from a seeding standpoint, it would be Gonzaga. Do you um, believe in the narrative or do you agree with the narrative that Kentucky always seems to get screwed over? Or do you think that's just, you know, like for this year, I mean, they were really underperforming for a long time and really turned it on at the end. So I don't know if they're misseeded. Um, but do you, what do you think of them this year? And, and do you think that they have an unfair road? Yeah, so they're obviously playing better now. I'm, I'm still a little, you know, skeptical that they're, say, a – top five or top 10 team, but, um, but they're certainly playing their best ball of the year. And uh, as far as getting screwed, I mean, so, I mean, you hit the nail on the head, like based on their full body of work and what the committee always talks about, you know, they don't care about how you finish. They care about the whole season. Like a four seed is a fair seed for them. Like we can debate whether that's a good way to see the tournament or not, but, or excuse me, they got a uh, five seed. I'm sorry, but uh, you know, it's kind of a, a fair seed for them, but um, uh you know, did they get screwed? I mean, in a sense, yes, they get screwed because they have to play Arizona, who is, you know, probably the toughest four seed, just glancing at the bracket. Um, but beyond that, like, you can say they got placed in the region with the number one overall seed in Virginia. But, I mean, they could have gotten placed, you know, uh, in the bracket with Villanova, who's also almost equally as good as Virginia. They could have got placed in the bracket where Duke was the two seed and Michigan State was the three seed. And, you know, how are you going to get out of that bracket? So, uh, Well, and you also have you also have Gonzaga as a four seed, so you probably think Gonzaga is a better team than Arizona. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, uh, <laughs> Arizona is really confounding, you know, as far as the, the – the stats go i mean they you know they've they look like you watch them play and you watch Aiden play and i was down at the pac-12 tournament and so i saw it firsthand and i mean you can't help but be like super duper impressed with how they played um and you wonder how is anybody ever going to stop deandre Aiden? and then on the flip side you realize that really the last three months of the season you know they, they played in the pac-12 they didn't really play another top 25 team um so you're kind of left with like wondering how good they are i mean i'm definitely not this person who like looks at my ratings and says oh gonzaga is ahead of arizona so i definitely think gonzaga is better than arizona like there's a huge challenge there like neither of those teams have played really difficult teams the last few weeks and uh deandre ayton is clearly if they matched up against each other he's clearly going to be the best player on the floor so um well but it's interesting right because if you look at arizona even the situation that they were in last week in both of those games, they got tremendous um, – the, the, the market moved in their favor. Like the betting market moved a lot in their favor um, in both of those games. Um, so, you know, I think you're right. They're confounding a lot of people in the SC game and in the UCLA game. I think the SC game moved three points in their favor from like one and a half to four and a half before the game closed. So they're confusing a lot of people. But like I said, we had Alan Boston on yesterday, and I was sort of talking about, you know, asking him whether Virginia had anything to worry about with the winner of, you know, Kentucky, Arizona, who he would worry about more if he were Virginia. And he said neither of them. And his point on Arizona was that even though it looked optically like they ran through the Pac-12 tournament, they really didn't. Like they, you know, had to go to overtime against a UCLA team that, you know, really had run out of gas in overtime. And even against SC, they were down by two and a half at halftime until SC center went out. And that's when Aiton really took over. So I think Arizona has a lot of people confused. And, you know, like if you believe the narrative that they have a lot of trouble guarding um, like the, you know, drive and kick kind of teams, like will they have some trouble with Buffalo? Or do you think that's, you know, not not a not going to be a close game because Buffalo has no one that can cover eight cover eight. Yeah, I, I mean, I will say I'm not as like 
bought in on Arizona as, as just about everybody else seems to be. Like, I still wonder, you know, their defense has not played well most of the season. It played better in the Pac-12 tournament, but, you know, it's ranked 70th, so it's uh, still a, a sore point. Um, I mean, I yeah, I can't see them having too much trouble with Buffalo, but um, – who knows? I mean, I, w- I will say in their defense too, in that UCLA game, like they, they never trailed in the second half. So it wasn't like, I mean, it did go to overtime and obviously was uh, a close game, but really, except for uh, I think the last like play where uh, UCLA might've had like a half court shot at the end of regulation, like UCLA, I don't think I ever had the ball with the chance to take the lead if I'm not mistaken. So, um, so it wasn't, a, it, it was basically as dominant of an overtime game as you can get. I mean, obviously they didn't dominate, but you get the idea. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, you know, I would still. But that's almost like it's almost counter to your Virginia point, right? Your Virginia point was like your system doesn't really care whether Virginia, like Virginia, whether they won or lost that game, right? Like what the actual outcome was, it just ranks it based on the way that game was played. And like I'm almost saying, like you know, UCLA Arizona for an overtime game, it's like isn't that isn't that basically a toss up? Uh, it's not a toss up because Arizona won the game by 11, and. Uh... Uh, overtime scoring matters. <laughs> so, you know, I've, I've actually done a study on this, looking at like uh, how much overtime scoring uh, does matter. Cause I was kind of curious myself and it turns out like overtime margin of victory is pretty important. Like it's, it's a little bit less important than if Arizona had won by 11 in regulation, but it's still uh, pretty telling. And uh, the fact that they were able to just wreck UCLA in overtime is uh, an important piece of information that we shouldn't discard. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll trust you on that. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Do you think that either of those teams can um, challenge Virginia? I mean, certainly they can challenge Virginia. I would, you know, an Arizona-Virginia matchup is super intriguing just from the standpoint that Virginia is, is one of the few uh, modern basketball teams that, like, consistently doubles the post. Like, that's just what they do. And so it's like they're they're not really going to have to alter the game plan against Arizona. Like, they're obviously very effective and uh, – you know, preventing good shots and they do that while doubling the post. And that's exactly like, you know, how you're going to have to defend DeAndre Aiden. I don't think you can uh, let DeAndre Aiden get his and then just try to defend the perimeter. Like it's, it's too difficult to even doing that is too difficult to defend the perimeter. So I, I do like kind of Virginia's approach against them, but uh, it would be a, a fantastic test. I mean, no question. Virginia would, would have to earn uh, any trip to the elite eight, you know, whether they, they play Arizona or Kentucky. Interesting. So some other questions on uh, teams this year, like, do you like look at a team like where where do you think like a team like Clemson, you know, what are your sleepers, I guess, would be would be the question. Like, you don't think any there's no no clear teams like Wichita, but, you know, for those people filling out brackets, what were our teams that you would look at? Like, how about like a New Mexico state? Or I'll actually ask you a question that I'm sure you don't really want me to ask you because we're trying to keep it hush hush. But is this the year of 16 beats a one? (laughs) <laughs> yeah not if we talk about it uh um yeah i mean obviously you know Penn uh got uh I, they were either the victim or the beneficiary depending on how you look at it at uh, the committee's sort of like inattention to the the bottom quarter of of the seating um uh, so uh, you know it's a beneficiary for people who want to see a 16 over one because obviously uh you know Penn has a a realistic chance i don't you know 10 percent chance or so of, of beating kansas if you believe my system or believe the betting market so uh um you know 10 is not something that is likely but uh it's obviously going to be worth watching that game um because it shouldn't be a 30 point blowout um 
So yeah, that's an intriguing matchup. I mean, as far as like true sleepers go, I, you know, I did, you know, before we came on, I tweeted out something, you know, talking about Tennessee and how they're the, the SEC team actually that's most likely to get to the final four. And like zero people are talking about them in the final four in the South region. You know, it's either Virginia or Arizona or Kentucky. Maybe a few people have Cincinnati out there. Nobody's talking about Tennessee. And uh, they're actually in a you know pretty friendly like section of that bracket where they play the winner of Miami and Loyola. You know, neither team is terribly difficult. I mean, there are no guarantees, but um, that's a team that I think could sneak up on some people. And if you want to, like, it's just a super contrarian pick that isn't like that much of a long shot. Like Tennessee's a, a good team to hang your hat on. What about a team that you think will uh, have the biggest chance to go out early that we're not, we're not, uh, you know, obviously Xavier, I guess, is an obvious choice. But are there any other ones that you think like you wouldn't put in through through very far in your bracket? Yeah, I mean, Xavier is a good choice. Uh, you know, if I was doing a bracket, I, you know, I, I wouldn't have a lot of confidence in Kentucky, honestly, like playing Arizona. I feel like that's a, um, a team to send out early. Maybe Ohio State, you know, they haven't played well and they've kind of overachieved tremendously relative to kind of early season expectations. You know, it's maybe a team that I wouldn't have a, a ton of confidence in at that point. Um Auburn. Auburn's another team that, you know, obviously suffered a, a you know, fairly critical injury uh, about a month ago and uh, haven't really played terribly well since then. Um, they're, you know, a four seed in the Midwest opening up against Charleston. You know, they're a pretty decent favorite against Charleston. They'll probably win that game, but it's hard to really imagine like Auburn ending up, you know, in the Elite Eight or the Final Four. So in terms of uh, the Blue Bloods uh, region where you have Kansas, Duke, and Michigan State, I know what your ratings say, but is is that who you think will go through? Um, yeah, I mean, I I really like I really like Duke. I'm actually was pretty surprised they weren't the uh, you know odds-on favorite to uh, win it uh, when the you know the features came out. Um, I'm sure that has something to do with Michigan State, you know, being a potential Sweet 16 matchup that obviously limits both teams' uh, ceilings, but. Uh, uh, yeah, if the bracket were perfectly balanced, I'd, I'd um, pick Duke to win it all, except I have a personal uh, rule to not pick Duke to win it all. But uh, I think they're the, the team that's like most built to win six games in a row against kind of normal tournament competition. Have their ratings improved a lot since they switched to the zone for you? Yeah, I mean, their defensive ratings improved a lot. You know, they're up to seventh now, and I, I don't know like where they bottomed out this year. I think there were times where they were um, – maybe outside the top 100 uh you know two or three months ago but uh yeah they've uh, um, completely flipped the switch on that and certainly you know uh i think you know it's hard to imagine like a team playing a zone i obviously syracuse won a national title with a zone but it's hard to imagine a team playing a zone and winning a national title just because most of the time when a team plays a zone their defense isn't very good and it's they're playing a zone because they absolutely can't survive with a man defense but um duke may be that exception they've obviously uh been able to to shut down a, a few teams or at least limit a few teams uh playing that zone so uh you know i i do think like their size and and scoring ability and and with that defense like they have all the all the features that you'd look for for a, a national title team so back to sort of referencing our conversation yesterday with alan boston one of the things we talked about and one of the things that was interesting about this uh interview we had with him was we were basically deconstructing his process and he's not an analytical guy at all and what Rufus and I found is that he's a very analytical guy in how he thinks about the game and how he asks questions and whatnot. And one of the notions that he sort of talked about was the idea of priors for some of these teams where basically like he didn't know that they were priors, but he was basically saying like, hey, Michigan State has a higher ceiling 
than Gonzaga has historically. And so they, you know, they, they, they're going to, if they play to their best, they're going to be better than Gonzaga. So almost using the school as a proxy for the amount of talent they have. Given sort of what's happening in college basketball over this landscape, something like what what Brad what Brad Stevens did with Butler making the finals twice in a row, it, do you believe in this notion, or do you believe that like every year is different? And the actual like, if you were to do it to do a modeling system from the ground up, you wouldn't start with priors. No, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, that's one thing that's, we were talking about earlier about kind of like how my ratings are predictive, but the information going into them is a lot more limited than it could be. And I mean, one thing that would help certainly is using uh, the prior from the beginning of the season, you know, like preseason expectations. I mean, that's uh, pretty important. And I do believe it would, it would make my, my ratings better even now. Um, So that certainly applies to Michigan state who, you know, some people thought was uh, preseason number one heading into the season. Same thing with Arizona. You know, it's one reason to like, that's one reason why I'm skeptical that Arizona is really you know, like 21st as they are in my ratings. Like, you know, they're probably a little bit higher than that given what we knew about or what we thought about them before the season started. Um, and by the way, like that is an issue with Virginia. Like you look at the track record of teams uh, that are not ranked in the preseason AP poll and end up getting a one seed. Uh, it is rather poor in the NCAA tournament. I mean, it, something like 13 or 14 teams have, have been in that scenario and maybe like one or two has gotten to the final four. So, um, so that's an issue with them as well, even though it's a little bit of a technicality, they were, I think 26th. And uh, obviously a lot of the computer polls, including mine had them ranked pretty high in the preseason. So uh, it may more be a case that uh, the humans were just like not uh, doing their research, but uh but yeah, I mean, I think understanding like where teams were uh, before the season, it can be uh, pretty useful, I think, in crafting your own uh, uh, opinion of, of where they are now. What percentage, if you had to put a number on it, what percentage would you say uh, you should wait prior versus in season going into the NCAA tournament? Yeah, not huge. I mean, I, uh, I, 10, 15%, something like that. Um, That's still pretty high. Yeah. Uh, it's you know it's an important factor but obviously the, the on-court play is is more telling i think a lot of people would think it should be zero percent after like you know 30 some odd games well i think we would like to believe that we would like to believe that what happened on the court is a perfect indicator of, of who those teams are i mean you would like to think every outcome is deserved but i mean obviously when you look at the numbers over uh you know a long period of time you start to see these situations where that's obviously not the case and uh um, you have to sort of face reality that sometimes what happens on the court is uh, not exactly a true representation of who those teams are. So can you, can you give us a final four? I can give you a final four. It's, it's going to be wrong, but. Uh, <laughs> as I, as I well, can you out, also tell us the probability associated with that final four? <laughs> yeah. Um, so as I pointed out today, and I'm sure you guys are aware of like no team has, uh, you, you know, better than 50% chance of getting to the final four. So, uh, so is that true? Most years, is it, usually there is one or two teams that have yeah, a better chance. Usually if you have a, you have a strong favorite. Yeah. If you have a strong favorite or two, usually they're over 50%. Um, I did notice that 538, I think has Villanova at exactly 50%, but like, if you look at the betting markets, a pinnacle, like th- that's not the case. So, um, he also, he also said that Hillary was going to win. So. <laughs> We, we're, we're friends in Nate. We just give him crap about that because people all give him crap about his prediction, not understanding what actual the probabilities mean, you know, or what the market had or, or where the market was. Yeah. I mean, he was better than the market. So oh, yeah. Whatever. Like t- to right. me, that was a winning prediction on his part because it was it was more correct than the markets. Uh, although I don't even know if you can say more correct. The outcome aligned with this prediction better than, than did with the markets. Exactly. Yeah. 
Exactly. So I had uh, dinner with him the other day and had sort of the mea culpa with him where I was like, yeah, you were more right than, than I thought you were. I thought you were way off. Cause I thought he was basically hedging away like all the uncertainty that he'd had with Trump along the way by saying that Trump had a chance. And I was like, Trump doesn't have a chance. So it shows you what I know. Anyway, sorry. Back to what we're talking about. Uh, yeah. What what's what's the probability for your final four? Oh, yeah, yeah. Final four. And what's the probability? Okay. Okay. Let me just think about this. I'm going to go with Villanova, Villanova, Duke, Gonzaga, and, uh, and I'm going to go with Tennessee. I'm going to go with the long shot. I like it. Probability of that is probably about 0.5%. No, maybe like point, maybe like point one percent. How about that? Point one percent. So well, you're saying what's Tennessee's probability alone? I'd say there's about ten. I think I have a little, at eleven in my my analysis. It's like five thirty eight's nine percent there, so around the same. I wonder, I wonder what their futures are. If there's any value there, but I don't Jeff, know. Jeff, we, we got to bet it. We got to bet it before we release the oh, podcast. Oh, there's like seven people that listen to this podcast. They're not going to move the market. It's fine. How about the national championship from that mix, Ken? From that mix, I'm going to go uh, Gonzaga over Duke. Gonzaga over Duke. Wow, that'd be great revenge. I'm a big Gonzaga fan. I was I was pretty bummed about last year's finals because I thought that was sort of finally their year. And I can't stand the way North Carolina plays basketball. So for them to sort of come out vindicated in that whole sequence, I, I still don't think that was it Perkins or Nigel Williams. Got, he was like, he was out of bounds. The dude was out of bounds. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but <laughs> anyways. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I'd like to see a Gonzaga finals, but I, I think, I think Duke is actually an interesting team because of how talented they are and and the zone but it's interesting of what you said that like teams but do you think that's just bias because like most of the good teams aren't playing zone full-time how many like how many good teams are there that have played zone full-time yeah it's i mean there's uh, how many yeah there aren't many great teams that have done it like this year it seems like half the team in college basketball are playing zone but uh, uh yeah i mean i don't know like there's a selection bias there or whatever but i think it is like it's telling like if you're only playing zone because you can't play man well then you your zone defense is probably not that great either it's just a stop gap to prevent you know horrible carnage um defense so it, awareness is de- lack of defense awareness is lack of defensive awareness regardless of what kind of defense you play yeah pretty much and you're definitely you know you're sacrificing stuff playing zone i mean you're sacrificing uh offensive rebounds like you're going to be very vulnerable with that you're probably sacrificing open looks from three although uh syracuse has successfully designed a defense that uh, prevents that pretty well um so i mean those are things that you know generally in combination do not uh, spell you know a good defense so uh yeah that's i mean i think i'd be really impressed if, if duke could pull it off playing his own okay last question for me and then rufus i don't know if you have one more but buyer or seller of michigan uh kind of a buyer i mean you know people like talk about their defense which has been absolutely like outstanding this year and uh amazing especially for a john d line team but they have given back some of those gains offensively like they don't have the same offense that they usually do this is definitely not a you know a trey burke style offense so um so i mean i sell like they're legit three seed like they're legitimately good enough to be a three seed like but they're not you know one of the five best teams in the country or anything like that rufus you got one more or do you want me to ask one more uh i'm good if you have something last one the, this team cuts down the nets, surprises everyone. Who is it? I mean, isn't Gonzaga surprising everyone? That's, that's got to be yeah. a surprise, right? 
Yeah, I think that'd be a surprise. It could be either Gonzaga or Tennessee for your Final Four. Certainly, if you think Tennessee has a chance to make the Final Four, you think they have a chance to win it all. Yeah, that would be a major surprise, although I bet their odds are uh, maybe marginally better than Gonzaga's. I haven't checked. but Yeah, they are, but you're never going to get good value on those because they're not two-sided markets, unfortunately. So right. getting long shots is is pretty pretty much a bummer. Yes. Um, all right. All right, Ken, thanks a lot for the time. This was super interesting. Um, thanks for uh, spitting some of your knowledge with us. Thanks for having me on, guys. Appreciate it, and uh, enjoy the games. So that was Ken Pomeroy, um, which was interesting in many aspects. Um, I found sort of like the the amount of almost like respect he had for the markets to be fascinating. Um, you would think that someone who's kind of coming up with a – contrarian or a new system would want to be better than the markets, but he was basically respecting the markets and almost saying like he would take the markets over his ratings because they incorporate or they have more information. Uh, He gave his final four. So Rufus and I are now going to give our final fours. Um, Mine is actually not too dissimilar to Mr. Pomeroy's. Uh, I like um, Virginia out of the South, and I like Villanova out of the East, which are chalkity chalk, chalk, chalk. And then I like Duke out of the Midwest. And then I'm going to go with Michigan out of the West. So that's my final four. And then cutting down the nets, let's go with Michigan over Duke. Okay, so for mine, I kind of like being contrarian. and Although... I guess I'm going to be contrarian against analytics a little bit on this, but I think that's kind of how you need to be. You kind of have to do something like if you, at least for a bracket, if you're trying to, uh, to, to game, you know, play a game theoretically. And so I'm not, I'm not stick with Xavier, even though I know that they're, they're misseeded just because I think a lot of nobody wants to pick all number ones. Right. And so they're the number one, most people aren't going to take, so I'm going to take them. So I'll take Xavier. I'm going to take actually Virginia too, because I grew up in Virginia, and I think that a lot of people don't think that they have a, a real, even though they're 31 and 2, right? They're kind of the team that overachieved. Um, I'm going to go with West Virginia in the, um, a, a, after Allen Boston sold me in West Virginia. Um, as long as the refs don't screw them, they got to be a favorite, right? Mm-hmm. And then um, and then I'm going to go with Michigan State in the uh, in the Midwest. So, And then I guess I will go with Michigan State against Virginia in the final and Virginia winning. All right. I like it. Those aren't bad picks. So although although uh, actually if, if I was doing a bracket for like, you know, with one of those um ESPN ones where there's like a million different entries, I would definitely have a winner that was like Nevada or something. I mean, I, I don't know anything about I don't Nevada. I think you need team. to go all the way down to Nevada to do that. I think if you but as long as you stay away from the number ones, you know, and in, in like the bigger pools, you have a chance. Even like a Michigan winner is is I think would be um, like a reasonable one to win a bigger, bigger size pool. Right. But it's, it's not about staying away from the number, the number ones win it, it, like having all number ones. It's about like, you can have number ones, but then if you have the one team that did surprise everyone, then you end up uh, that nobody else had, that's when you win. Well, this is where it makes sense to reference our friend Ed Fang's work. Cause yeah. he's certainly done yep. a lot more work on this than we have the power rank. If you want to check out, he's got a lot of great information on March madness stuff. Um, he wrote a book. He wrote a book on how to, how to win your tournament pool. And actually he literal, did a, a, a literal book, a literal, literal book. book. And he actually, uh, he yeah, hands he it out sometimes at bars. <laughs> he does hand it out at bars. <laughs> and he actually, um, my sister actually helped him produce a, a, 
podcast on March Madness, which is like like go go over to the power and can actually give it a listen. I think it's uh I think it's 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 pretty good. Why doesn't your sister help us with this podcast? <laughs> she we haven't asked her. All right. She's an audio Why don't you go yeah. enjoy South America and go do some tango um, dancing. I, I'm missing my tango lessons for this podcast, so that's dedication. It's dedicated. But when do you get to sit and riff around with Ken Pomeroy? That was so that's, cool. It's true, exactly. Ken Palm is more important than Tango for sure. All right. Thanks, guys. We'll talk to you guys in a couple weeks. Good luck in your brackets.